The Bible clearly teaches that man is totally depraved, but yet men don't do the worst things that they can possibly do. Why is that? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. The Bible teaches that man is totally depraved. Like in Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul writes, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If man is that bad, which you know, Paul wrote that, he clearly is that bad, then how do people do sacrificial things? There's people who, who will risk their life for strangers. There's people who take care of their families very well. That are unbelievers. Unbelievers do a lot of things that, at least superficially, look very good. So, how can the Bible teach that there is none who does good? No, not one. So, when we want to talk about this doctrine of depravity, really, what we're doing is we're we're trying to put some context on what does it mean to be depraved, and really, the doctrine of depravity is talking about the effects of sin in the world. And you have to start before you talk about depravity. You have to start with the fact that God made the world. And God made the world good. And so depravity is then the effects of sin as sin trickles out through the world. And what Paul's really saying in a verse like this is there's no part of the human soul, there's no part of the human mind, there's no part of the human body that's not affected by that and that doesn't have consequences. There's, there's nothing human left for, for which sin didn't affect man. But that doesn't mean that the power of sin can overcome all of the things about the world that God created that he said were good. When Paul writes and says they've all together become unprofitable, to understand that, it doesn't mean that they can't be profitable to men because somebody goes and risks their life to save somebody else, but that's profitable to another man. But when you think of what the purpose of creation is, which is to bring glory to God, everything they do is not good because it doesn't bring glory to God. Everything they do is not profitable because it is not their intention to bring glory to God. It is not their intention to fill, fulfill what God says is profitable, which is righteousness. Right? He, with the parable of the, the vineyard, he sends his, his servants to gather their fruits, which represents righteousness, and says, I don't find any righteousness. So when we think about them, people can do things that outwardly have very positive effects in the world, but they're not doing it for the glory of God, so it's unprofitable. It's not good. And it's, this is, I mean, and so when you, I think you really underscored the kind of the total very well. The, the purpose, when you say total depravity, the total is to, is the, is that no part of man is left untouched. It is not talking about the degree to which each part of man is corrupt. It is talk, you know, it's not that each part of man is as corrupt as it can be. It is that there is no part of man that has not been affected by sin. And then when you kind of talked about specifically about they've become unprofitable, it's very specific towards they're incapable of, of properly intending and, and, and causing, even if they intended to in a sense, they weren't capable of, of actually doing that work which was pleasing to God. Both of those things. They're unable to 
even when they want to intend to do good things for God. They're not capable of even intending to do them correctly. And I think this idea is, is pretty simply proved by just a couple of Bible verses. You know, whatsoever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Is saying that even the most mundane things you can do in life, eating and drinking, you need to do them for God's glory. And then you contrast that with where it says even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Another right. very mundane thing, when the wicked is doing it, it is sin for him. And so that, that shows that even, you know, righteousness and unrighteousness aren't things that are like, you know, violations of the Ten Commandments, it goes down to every single action we do, even every thought we think is either glorifying to God or not glorifying to God, and therefore it's either sinful or it's, or it's righteous. And when Dan talked about that man can be profitable for man, Scripture even recognizes that in a sense when it talks about that for a good man, some people are willing to die, and that good is like it's a relative good. It's not saying It's not saying only saved people are who people are willing to die for. They're saying there are men in the world who've been profitable to other men. They've been good to other men, and men look at them and say, you're a good man. I'd be willing to die for you. That's not righteousness. And so there is this, you know, it's, it's, there is profitability among men, which does not make you righteous. And one of the things you said before is they could do it with the intent to serve God. They can think they're doing it with the intent to serve God, but that's not possible is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that those who do not know God can't serve God. They don't know him. They he doesn't exist. They can't to, even right? they can't intend to know something that they don't know. Right. They can they claim can't intend to. to right. They can claim to, they can express that they're doing it, but without faith, without belief in belief in God, how can you serve a God that you don't believe exists? You don't. So right. you know inherently the unbelievers lying when they say they're doing it to serve God, because right. that simply is not possible. Right. There's a way in which you could say that uh, an unsaved man's worship of God, when he says he's worshiping God, is, is really idolatry. Right. But it might be helpful before we get too far into this to kind of put a definition onto total depravity and, and what we mean by it. And this is from the Second London Baptist Confession which says in chapter 6, paragraph 2, Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And again, that word holy there is, is emphasizing not the degree, but again the, the scope. And I mean, I think it's really easy a lot of times when people read things, we put an emphasis on, we put an undue emphasis on certain on a certain aspect of words. Like when people read John 3.16 and they do whosoever and they, they whoso, you know, they, they put this emphasis on it that doesn't exist. It's very easy to get this doctrine wrong and to think about it in a way that, that is not what Scripture is teaching. I mean, at the time the SLBC was written, the, it would have been in the context of working against Catholic errors that believed that there were, that, that, the fall of man only affected parts of man that only affected either his body or his soul, but his mind was unfallen, and therefore man could reason his way back into righteousness. And this is one of those statements that in that context is saying, no, there's no part, you cannot find a part of man that isn't, hasn't been affected by the fall. And this really comes from Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So it's saying that their mind, that, that nothing is pure, everything has been defiled, everything has been affected. There's nothing that, 
that was not affected by the fall to cause them to be unprofitable and to not be good. So, and this also ties to, to the the doctrine that, that an unsaved man is dead to God and dead to the things of God. And there are different verses that, that show aspects of this, and one of those aspects is in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And this, this goes toward even the picture of where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. And there's this part of it where, I mean, and even it's, it's really interesting because that word for born again is, is born in Nothan, which can mean again, and it can also mean from above. Those are its kind of two meanings. And there's this part of it where, I mean, there is this, the natural man, which is the earthly man, which he is, he is now carnal, he is earthly. He, he needs to be born in a heavenly way. And so, I mean, both of those concepts are, are present in what Christ is telling him. And so, I mean, it's, it's, this is a very common thing, and it's a very common thing to misunderstand about what goes on and why a man needs to be saved. And when you look at it, you know, if you look at spiritual things, you know, they override physical things in so many ways and that they have a, a greater significance. Um, and so when you look at this, when you say, well, you've removed that, that layer above that is, that is above the, the mundane things, the earthly things, the – the, the purely physical things, when you remove all understanding of that, obviously that's going to mean that that you're missing like huge swaths of things in the world that are important. Because, yeah, you might know how to plow, but even the plowing of the wicked is sin. And you look at those things and you say, how can it be sin? Well, it's it's missing the significant part of creation because they can't even be seen. You nor can he know them. It's not possible for the spiritual dead to know them, which means when you when you miss out the most important thing, everything's defiled. Everything is lacking. Everything has problems because you're missing what's the most important thing, right. which is the spiritual aspect of it. Right. And, and, you know, if you're still hung up on, you know, how is plowing sin? Well, I mean, the thing is there's multiple ways you could, you know, split out one particular action. There's a multiple – there's a, uh, a variety of the scope that you could look at it. Like if a father gives his son, you know, father gives, you know, his son a piece of cake. Well, it's good for a father to provide for a son. It's good for a father to give good gifts to his children. But if he did it, you know, so that his son wouldn't tell the police that he just robbed a bank. Well, now you kind of put a whole different level on it. But if you're defining it, if you're just looking at it very narrow without any motivations or anything, well, sure, the plowing of the wicked isn't sin. But if you're looking at it, the action with enough, information associated with it that you can say you can attribute something morally right or wrong to it then it becomes sin so but there is a scope where you can say it's not sin to plow but to actually make a judgment over it you need to have those motivations and the reason you're doing it you know one of the questions in the westminster catechism is what is the chief end of man and the answer to that is to love god and enjoy him forever and when you look at the verses that support this is one of the things is that god made man to serve him and to do work for him and so the unsaved man can work, but he can't work with a pure heart towards God. He can't work and do it for the purpose that God made man. He can do it for lots of other reasons, and like I said, for reasons that men call good, but he does not do them for a reason that God looks at, and God says, this is the purpose for which I made you, and that's fundamental. And when we plow, right, when we're planting food, we're supposed to be acknowledging it's that God is the provider, and inherently the wicked cannot do that. They think they're plowing in their own strength, that they'll produce food in their own strength because 
they can't know spiritual things. It's not possible for them to know it. So in the end, there has to be this rejection of God as the provider while they're plowing, which makes it sin. And at the same time, he is plowing. He's not murdering his neighbor. Right. He's he's doing something. I mean, the verse says that it's sin, but it's not the absolute worst sin that he could be doing. Right. And kind of continuing on in those verses that talk about being dead, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And so, I mean, here very, very strongly, you, who he's talking to people who have been redeemed, who have been saved, who have been regenerated, he made alive, and he says very clearly, before you were dead, and he talks about how we all were in this state, all of us were in this state, and but we have been, we have been changed, but he's very much establishing the nature of a man who has fallen and who has not been made alive by God. And so a lot of people, when they look at total depravity, they think of it as doing the worst thing that you can possibly do. But when you look at Paul's definition of total depravity, it's that they once walked according to the course of this world. And so it really, that puts huge constraints on sin, right? The drunkard wakes up with a hangover. Well, that reduces how much he drinks. He's walking according to the course of the world. He's walking according to his flesh, but it also means that he goes and plows because otherwise he'll starve to death. Right. And so it's really easy to make it that that there is no constraint on man. But the reality is that statement there where he walks according to the course of this world, that's a real huge constraint because God has ordered the world in such a way that sin is constrained. And you can't survive very long if all you do is sin because – then you have no food. You have no, you know, you have all the consequences, the constant consequences of sin. So there's a reason why people aren't totally depraved in that way, meaning that they do the worst thing that they can possibly do. It's because of how God ordered the world. I mean, a lot of it also comes down to: Do you have a high view of sin or a low view of sin? Is, is sin something? Is it is it hard to do something perfectly righteous, or is it, you know, hard to actually sin? If if it's if sin is anything short of what you should be doing, but then I mean the reality is that that's a pretty you know, to to be righteous to do a righteous action is is a difficult thing. I mean, you even see these, and I mean, in the scriptures that are part of the basic what are considered to be like the Romans' road of salvation for all of sin, then come short of the glory of God. I mean, scripture is very clear. I mean, it is it is that you don't have to have done some horrible thing. It is that. You just have to fall short in one tiny way. You have to commit one sin. You have to be imperfect. And none of us are in the state of where we've only committed one sin, but Scripture is just really clear. It's not possible for you to live up to the glory of God. It is beyond your capacity, and that's what total depravity is very much speaking to. One of the important things to recognize in the doctrine of total depravity is that it does not remove or change in any way the sovereignty of God. And God is kind and God is merciful. And so the world is designed in such a way that it constrains sin all over the place. And when we look at that, we can say, well, man's not that bad. Because, look, the the father still goes and provides for his children, the unbelieving father. Or we can say, 
that's because God has structured the world such that there's all kinds of constraints in the world that causes him to do that so that the mercy and the kindness is God's that constrains his depravity. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't do the worst thing possible. It's that God has put all thi- all different kinds of things in place so that he can't do the worst thing possible. And so it's very easy for us to shift it from, you know, well, man's not that bad, right? Or to shift it from the glory of God to man's not that bad. And what we should get back to is, no, the reason that man's not that bad is because God is still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still ordered the world. He's still put all things in place. And so we can assign it to man when we should assign it to the mercy of God. And, and right, and kind of effectively what you're saying is, is when the when we get this doctrine wrong, we don't glorify God in the way that we should. We we miss the glory of God. And in fact, we ascribe the glory that should be given to God to the acts of man. And this is the worship of man, the kind of the idea of humanism and the idea of just the goodness of man is really a result of the world viewing this doctrine this way. But it's because the church has abandoned it as well. And Right. And so when you start to think of man as like the scholastics who thought that man's mind wasn't fallen and that they could reason everything out, and that's why they didn't act that way. I mean, that's stealing glory from God. And we just need to recognize that and be very careful not to steal glory from God. Yes, we would be that bad. Yes, we could be Hitler given the same opportunities. We shouldn't think that we would somehow stop before Hitler or Stalin and somehow that they are – superior to us they had different opportunities and they were able to do greater wickedness but not because of the difference of their heart the difference of their opportunity and the difference of their constraint and the most common phrase that you hear people say that acknowledge this pre-salvation i should put in there and the most common phrase that you hear people say that acknowledges this is there but for the grace of god go i i mean and you hear people say this a lot and the and it's not wrong i mean it's it's absolutely true but the issue is, is a lot of times it becomes this sort of throwaway phrase that we say as opposed to understanding and glorifying God and realizing all the ways that God has constrained sin. Because like you said, it is everywhere that sin is constrained. For example, I mean, it's just laid out again in one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And I think it's really important to recognize that one of the ways that people glory in their flesh is they go, look, man, total depravity, he has to be able to do whatever he wants. No, God causes the weak things of the world, right? The fact that, you know, the fact that you you get hungry if you don't eat for a while. He causes the weak things of the world to bring down the mightiest. The mightiest person gets a cold and they're still brought low, right? right? I mean, this is what God does. And so we should just recognize that, no, sin is very constrained in the world. And we even see this, like, in history. I mean, there's the, the famous, like, poem of, you know, for one of a horse, for one of the, you know, for, and it goes down to for one of a nail, you know, for one of a nail to go in the horse's shoe, that all this thing, a whole kingdom fell. I mean, and, you know, so, I mean, there's this part of where God brings to man's knowledge that the weak things confound the mighty, and he shows us this, but it's really easy for us to turn away from them and forget them. So I think it's... You know, worth considering how he does this in some you know particular ways right 
it in yeah the first way he does it is just in the flesh in our weakness of flesh god constrains it so that we need we need like real physical things which means that our depravity is very constrained right romans 6 19 through 21 i speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And so God gave us weak bodies, and we're presenting them as slaves of unrighteousness. We're doing everything that we can in our weak bodies to be slaves of unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean that we're always that great as slaves of unrighteousness because of the weakness of our flesh. We are weak, and so we can't be that mighty, evil person. We don't become Satan, not because our heart is right, but because we don't have the power of Satan. This is why punishment works. This is why corporal discipline works, right? I mean, corporal punishment. I mean, you know, when you, when you do something and you receive pain for it, like you said, the hangover is a simple example, but even just when a child gets spanked, he doesn't have unlimited energy. I mean, I remember... With, with early on with children, and there were times where they were just very defiant over little, little things. And I didn't have to even spank them hard at each spanking, but they would keep fighting. And I remember like a lot of times in the beginning, it ended with them falling asleep. And I remember going, this is what the phrase, I wore him out means. Is often people go, they think it means some horrible spanking. I mean, I'm not saying that it couldn't be connected to that, but there's a part of it where what the person did is the person took the time to overcome you. That is a southern slang term, by the way. It is. It is a. Sl- I mean, but I mean, but there is a part of where I they just re- made some of our listeners may have no idea what that means. <laughs> right. But I mean, and there's a part of where I mean, but it literally means I. You know, I mean, you took the time to wear them to to exhaust their energy so that they had to stop fighting against you, and then and they just. I mean, and this is how this is how many wars are won. Is there one through attrition? They're one through the other side going, we have no more strength to endure against you. You've pushed us, and now we're, we're too weak, so you've won. I mean, we just forget that this is the nature of the world and that so much evil gets constrained because someone stronger looked at them and said, if you do it, I'm going to push you down again. And after a while, they got tired of getting back up and getting pushed down. I think when you look at the history of warfare, you know, probably at least until the last 100 years or 150 years, most people that died in warfare died of sickness, right? Because armies go out in the field. I mean, it, I, I'm, it's probably true now. I mean, definitely, you know, a lot sooner than 100 years. Right. It's certainly – that's true. In World War One, it was definitely true. World War Two, it was probably still true. It may not be true now because we have better ways to provide food and stuff. But, but basically – most people that died in war through the history of the world, they died in war because they basically got worn out. The weakness of their flesh meant that they couldn't continue to do it. They, you know, dysentery obviously is a much bigger killer than bullets historically in the world. And yet we think we're so strong and we're so powerful. Well, that's a huge constraint on evil that God has put in the world is that if your body gets stressed out and if you're not careful with your water and other things, you get dysentery. And that really weakens you. And that's just so people can't go and just, like, destroy whoever they want to destroy, even when they're strong, because the weakness of their flesh brings them down. And even, you know, even beyond sickness, I mean, just physical limitation, like, 
people say that the only reason that you know every child doesn't kill their parents is because they physically are not able to because they are very weak and very small when they are very angry and you know that applies to adults as well you know there's just there's limitations on how much evil you can do just by the you know physical limitations of reality so what happens with the reality is God has put all kinds of authorities in the world. Obviously, they're all a reflection of himself. That's why there's authority in the world. But when you put authorities in the world, what that means is that authority has a real desire to constrain your sin because if they have to deal with you, you know, the 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 unbelieving father who doesn't really care that much even how his child, you know, hey, let him do whatever he wants. When he starts to do things that annoy him, starts to do things that affect him, start to do things to cause him to lose his temper, then all of a sudden he disciplines the child, right? I mean, you were talking before about the ones who never want to spank. Well, New Zealand has like the highest abuse rate in the world by parents. And so they banned all the use of the rod and abuse goes up because the reality is, is that it doesn't solve the problem. The right. problem is there's an authority and somebody under that authority that somebody that's more powerful is doing something to to push that person, and that person's going to go, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take it. And so there's this, this natural authority that's in place that causes one authority to constrain somebody else so that they aren't bothered. And then, you know, that causes them to be constrained. So even when they get older, they still have that training of constraints, so they aren't unconstrained. So God ordered and put authorities in the world that inherently constrain evil. I mean, and you can see exactly what you're talking about in Hebrews 12, 7 through 9. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And I mean, it I mean. The verse basically just said exactly what you were just talking about. That, I mean, there were times where, you know, there were people who had fathers, and the fathers didn't care about the things that God cares about. But you lived according to your father's rules when you were in his house. Because if you didn't, you either got kicked out at some point or it became unpleasant. And if you were a good son, you even showed your father respect. Even if his rules were were weird, you obeyed your father. And God's, you know, I mean, God's saying, I've ordered the world in this way. I've ordered it so that as you become a Christian, you recognize that there is still a father who is greater than earthly fathers. But even for those who never become Christians, there is order in the world, and their sin is constrained. And you see like a very young child, and you see where they have no sense of their sin being constrained. They scream all the time. They throw temper tantrums as they get a little older and a little bit more com- control of their physical bodies and they do all these things because that's what total depravity looks like right but then you also see at the same time you see the absolute sovereignty of god that when they when they would act out their total depravity god makes them so they're weak so they can't god makes it so they can't express themselves so that they can only do so much damage god god constrains them in so many ways and then he also puts a father and mother there that have a real vested interest in constraining their child. Now, as we have, as a society, have worked more and more to get the child out of the home more and more so that the parents don't have to interact, there's a lot less of that constraint. And we're seeing that play out in our society, that there's less constraint. And the constraint is different. But even in a teacher classroom, you see that constraint. In a 
in a you know police citizen you see that constraint in in all kinds of authority situations there is a natural constraint of sin that is produced and even like I said with the, in the classroom they may not spank but they use shame or they use you know I mean you know they use all these and and all these things they're they're part of the weakness of man right is that man man cares what other people think about him man doesn't you know he doesn't want to sit there and look like a fool he doesn't want he doesn't want these certain things to happen, so he's willing to allow his behavior to be changed and be modified. And, it's a, and this can be used in negative ways, but it can also be used to constrain sin. Right, things like peer pressure. You know, they're, I mean, they're built into the way that humans were created, and they're built in so that they constrain that depravity that we have. And another thing that we shouldn't forget, too, that just because man has fallen, it doesn't mean, and he's totally depraved, it doesn't mean that that God didn't write the law on his heart, on the heart of Adam. And yes, it got twisted. Yes, it was fallen. Yes, it was defiled. But it wasn't eliminated. God still, man still has an innate sense from God of what evil is. And so that is a real constraint, right? It says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. To show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, that their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And so, yes, when we're saved and you receive the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, and He writes the law in your heart, yes, that's a different thing and a different level of constraint. But we shouldn't act like God didn't give man a conscience because He talks about searing the conscience. He gave man a conscience. He gave man. You know, Adam had the law written on his heart. And so this puts real constraints that people really feel guilty about things. And so, yes, they're totally depraved. They're defiled in every aspect. But that doesn't mean that God just left them completely blind to what righteousness was. I remember when, as a church, we were going through the Second London Baptist Confession. I think we got on the part about the law. And I think there was at one point, one of the studies we were going through had a set of verses that showed each of the commandments and how man understood that they they existed prior to the law being given, right? I mean, every single one of them. And this is what you're, I mean, this is kind of effectively what you're saying. is It's not like the Gentiles are out there going, wait, we shouldn't steal from each other. In the end, there's a part of where God's put in their hearts. And also just, like you said, the constraint of, I don't want my stuff taken. We shouldn't steal. We should order it so that when you have something, other people don't take it from you. And if they do take it from you, they get punished. And this constrains sin. And we can go to bed at night and close our eyes. And in the morning when we wake up, our stuff is still there. You know, and no one has murdered us in our sleep. I mean, these are the sort of thing. And you see how the desire to have that can cause constraint and can cause order. There's a bunch of factors that push back and forth on that. You know, there are, you know, where where different aspects of men's uh, character and and even their sinful desires push back on other ones. Like, you know, the desire to the the greed that we have wants us to see justice done to people who wrong us. And so these different aspects of our our desires will play into each other. You know, perhaps we want to go. You know commit you know some horrible crime but we also want to live the rest of our lives without going to jail and so that you know our desire for freedom and our desire for this you know sin that is partially punished by society fight against each other right and so like i said we're, we're talking about total depravity which means that the fact that people want these things doesn't mean they're going to that they even they want both things right they both want to take someone else's stuff 
and they want their stuff to not get taken. And those things are at war with one another. And there are things that cause sin to abound. And so there's times in history when, yeah, almost no one, I mean, look at the, the French Revolution, I mean, you know, very dangerous times in history. There's other times in history where even within a culture that rejects God, where there's periods of peace because of other constraints that God has allowed to be to be upon them. Yeah, and it's something where, you know, every society has things that are in it that are in rebellion to the order that God established, but you can only go so far and you can only rebel in so many ways before things fall apart and people turn to something that reestablishes some good things. Like after the lawlessness in the French Revolution, you have Napoleon who puts in a lot of laws to constrain a lot of things. Doesn't mean that he was a righteous guy, doesn't, you know, but it does mean that in certain ways, the society was less self-destructive because as it went into self-destruction, people in, in their own sinful lusts and desires, they realized this is going to hurt me. I, I don't want this to continue. Right. And you look and I mean, the Napoleonic law code gets adopted pretty much by every country on the continent. I mean, it's not, you know, we use common law, which is from England, but the Napoleonic code was like the standard for law to this day for most countries in Europe. And so you see that just absolute lawlessness where it gets down to, and right when you have absolute lawlessness, it gets down to every man does what's right in his own eyes. And the response to that is the vast majority of people are scared to death because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and they're weak. Right. And so the vast majority of people in response to that are going to want more rigid laws, more rigid constraints on sin because they see what the effects of sin is. And again, that's the mercy of God because he shows us the effect of sin in the world. We've talked about a number of things. We've talked about the fact that, that total depravity shows that man's not sovereign, and we've talked about some of the aspects of that. But as you, as you look at it, there's also a sense where God actually uses sin to constrain sin, where there are sins that compete with one another and sins that, that push against each other. And even where you were talking about, you even kind of have talked about some of them in a sense where you can have an authority and it doesn't mean that that authority is a good authority, but the authority wants to be thought well of. And because he wants to be thought well of, and he well, he has pride, and he has all these different, you know, he has these desires, his, his desire to do those things, his sinful desires are going to cause him to try to regulate culture and try to constrain other people's sins in certain ways. And so God's built this into the world with fathers, you know, where even if the father doesn't really care about his children, his name, his, his name is associated with them. And so there are certain things he doesn't want people to see his children looking poor and, ha- and starving to death, so he provides for them because he wants to be thought well of. And so there's lots of sins like this that God uses to actually cause other sins to be constrained. I think you even see this when you – I mean, this is why, why every person doing what's right in his own eyes, which is basically anarchy, right, where there is no authority, there is no central authority, everybody does what's right in their own eyes – so anarchy is where you have the least constraint on sin because the only constraint on sin is individual to individual. There's no societal structure that creates uh, that constraint. And the reality is every civilization by its definition is putting those constraints in place. That's why it's even called civilization. It means that there has to be some ability to deal and interact with each other, pe- with, with other people, which is you know civil, civility. And so when you look at it, you have anarchy where you have no civilization. That's always an unstable situation that always collapses because that's how God ordered the world, that the authority will come in and he'll put constraints back in place. And so as we look at it and we just recognize that, that you know, 
we go, oh, look at, at President Putin as such a horrible you know, dictator. Well, compared to his, historically, he's not. But you also look at him and you go, but, but you know, the trains run in Moscow. They have money. They have food. They have all these things that they wouldn't have if they had anarchy. And when you say that the only constraint on sin in an anarchical situation is one man against another, really, it's, you know, you're saying, hey, I'm afraid of you. Therefore, I'm not going to do things to you. Right. It's, it's a might makes right at an atomistic level. Yes. Which and, and, and the, the counter to that is God didn't make the world where that's sustainable. But that's a really helpful way to, to approach the – you just need to destroy the fiction of there, there being an idea of a social contract. This enlightenment idea that, that the base state of man is we're going to start with the way that we get laws, the way that we get along is I won't hurt you so you won't hurt me. And then out of that, we're going to develop all of laws in society. That's just not the way that God made the world. God didn't make the world where laws naturally bubble up out of those kinds of small interactions. They do come from an authority who's declaring, this is the way things are. And even more, and even more specifically, God appoints that authority. I mean, when right. he's talking in Romans, you know, he says the, the authorities that be are ordained of God. And so, I mean, when it goes from anarchy to some authority coming in power, that is the mercy of God. That is God showing mercy on that situation. Because like you said, you may look at Vladimir Putin and go, I don't want to live in Russia under Vladimir Putin. But most of us haven't ever lived in a situation of anarchy either. We right. haven't ever had to endure anything even close to that. And under that, we would probably be very glad to live in Putin's Russia. And, th and, and you don't want to go, and we're not going. This makes Vladimir Putin righteous. Right. It's really important for people. I mean, I think, and part of it is that people just, we have this view of it's either totally righteous or it's totally evil. And God's like, no, it's, God is working out his will in the world and he's showing, he's glorifying himself over time. And there's this part of it where we need to actually look at the world and understand how God is glorifying himself. And this is one of the ways that he does this and even how he shows mercy. Because it is God working out his plan because it wasn't that Adam fell and then God was like, well, this is, this really messed things up. I had no idea this was going to happen. I mean, he created man knowing that man would fall. And so the way he made man is so that even when men fell, even when man became totally depraved, that those sins would fight each other and would end up producing stability in, in certain limited ways. And so that man, you know, that Adam and Eve didn't just both stab each other and then, or one stab the other, because that'd be the end of mankind. Right. You know, God put enough constraint in them so they didn't go and, you know, end the human race. You know, they... The, the sin was constrained until there were, you know, several people around so that one could kill the other. So, you know, so, I mean, and there was all part of God's plan and part of his order that he, uh, you know, he made man in this way that we can, we can, even unsaved men can live in relative harmony with each other. And there's enough sense of what's morally right and wrong because of the law written on your heart that, that the law is a tutor that leads to Christ, meaning that the law is this thing that makes it so you can't go too far off the rails. So even though man's depraved, God hasn't ordered the world with that level of depravity. So there are these guardrails that we don't all kill ourselves. Because if man had their choice, we would all kill ourselves. But we're not sovereign. God's sovereign. And he's in control. You know, it's interesting when when you were talking before that it really struck me that that how many problems and wars have been caused by the rejection of the doctrine of total depravity. For instance, 
the second Gulf War, when Bush goes in and conquers it, he immediately removes all the leadership. And then the country goes insane. Well, if he understood basic doctrine that goes, you need to have this constraint in place, otherwise everybody will go constrained. And and this happened after World War II. This has happened throughout history. This happens over and over again where people go, oh, yeah, we can remove all the leaders and they'll still be a society. Well, no, there won't be. There'll be chaos. There'll just be everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, which is just so destructive. And so, you know, we have to, we should see how these things play out in reality because they're denied so often by men that we make really stupid mistakes as nations. And we should recognize when God decides to act in a particular way with a particular people or a particular culture to judge them. One of the ways that he could do it is he could send in a dictator from outside and conquer them and take them over and say, here are new laws for you. But another way that he does it, often the precursor to that, is he just starts taking his hand off and removing those constraints. And, and you find yourself in the situation where you're the illegitimate son that Hebrews talks about. It's not chastened. It's not disciplined. God just says, here, fine. You, I see what the desires of your heart are. I'm going to let you pursue those things. I'm going to take away, I'm going to remove the constraints that are between you and the objects of your affection. I'm just going to let you have them. And then, and that's, and that's where that's we are. Anarchy. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. That's the path that we've been on. And that's the path that we're headed until at some point somebody says, hey, let's honor God or God decides descend and destroy us and or you just fall on each other and kill each other i mean we kind of know what the end is if you read the scriptures right there aren't that many ends that it ends up with and and you look at the path that america's on and these are the paths that we're on either somebody will waltz in and take us over or we'll kill each other or we'll repent when we think of that constraint we've been talking about it externally right like society doing it but we have to recognize that there's all kinds of internal constraints too you know, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. When you look at these things and you see the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it means your sin can't go to the fullest extent. Because if it did, if your sin went to the fullest consent, to the fullest extent of lust of the flesh, so say that you got drunk and were lying in a gutter, well, everybody's going to look at you with disgust. So your sin of wanting them to look at you with the, you know, the eyes being upon you and think, people thinking you're a good person, well, obviously the lust of the flesh can't go full force without it affecting the lust of the eyes. Your idea of who you are and the pride of life to say, oh, look at how great I am, well, if you're drunk in a gutter, you're not going to be saying, look how great I am. And so you can't let that full sin go without it really affecting the other sins. And so God put these sins that in us, we have these sins that compete with one another. So none of them run to the fullest extent. One of the dangers of not understanding that is that what happens is, is you end up defining Christianity as someone who has their sins balanced. You know what I mean? Because there's this part of it where if you, if you, if people don't, if people think that being unsaved means your sin is just out of control, right? Well, they don't really understand. No, God actually has put lots of ways for sins to be controlled and regulated without being saved. Not completely, like you're saying, and and 
And what he's, I mean, you look at First John, it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a really high standard. That's mm-hmm. a very different than saying that the person is a respectable functioning member and, a, and like a genuinely respectable member of society, someone who, who even actively works to constrain their sin because they see the danger and damage of it. That is not the definition of a Christian. And so whenever you get this philosophy wrong, you get this doctrine wrong, it causes you to look at the world in a very different way. It causes you to look at Christianity in a different way. And the, in the church in particular, it causes real confusion. And as you look, right, I mean, it's kind of this idea that, that you know, you have the I – re, I remember a survey that was probably done 35 years ago among Southern Baptist pastors, and 50% of them admitted to looking at pornography once a month, or maybe it was once a quarter. It's been a while. But when you think about that, right, this is the picture. Well, they all knew they'd lose their job if everybody knew they were looking at pornography all the time or if they went out and had affairs all the time because then you're a lot more likely to get caught with an affair than you are looking at pornography. So they are trading off, right? They're trading off the lust of the eyes. They want that position. They're trading it off against the lust of the flesh. So they look at pornography by themselves in their bedroom where nobody else can see them and so they've constrained their lust of the flesh. They're not chasing women you know, out at bars or anything. But at the same time, you can look at them and say, this person looks really holy, right? They could stand up every Sunday and preach. And yet that doesn't mean that they weren't filled with the love of the world. It's just that's the level that the constraint can be. And so it's one of the dangers that we have in our current society is that there's so many things that make it easier and easier to fulfill the lust of the flesh and other things without getting caught, without people seeing it. So it's we're eliminating the trade-offs in some of those sins with some of the technology. I mean, and it's one of the things where, I mean, it's important for parents as you're raising children, parents who have children who are potentially unsaved. I mean, it's important to recognize and understand what your children are and who they are. If you have a child that's not saved, and it's important to not try to make the rules of your household higher than they really should be, or to, I mean, you have to actually live with your children according to knowledge. And there's this part of it where there are people who they, they can skew. I mean, most people don't have the problem of setting the standard of their rules <laughs> of their household too high. But they can set them too high in certain areas. They can set them because in the end they're really not think they're not living with their children according to knowledge. And that's really important is when you understand this doctrine, you can actually look at your children and understand what your children are trying to do that they're actually wrestling with, like you talked about, these three different major categories of a person's life that kind of define their different areas of sins. And they're trying to, and each one of them has a different one that's most important to them, what they care about, what they balance. And there's a part of it where, I mean, you're trying to teach them to live in the world, and you're also trying to show them who Jesus Christ is. And those two things, it's really easy to get the balance wrong there. And it's really easy to, to misunderstand the point of what you're trying to accomplish. And I think just to, to try to make sure it's clear what you're saying, they are slaves of sin. Right. And because they're slaves of sin, you will not get them to walk in perfect righteousness. That's not possible. That requires the work of God. But that doesn't mean that real sin can't be constrained. And if they have respect towards you, that's a real lever to constrain sin, right? But if at the same time you push them beyond their able where they're able to go so that you're exasperating your children, they'll lose respect for you. And so then their sin will be less constrained. And our responsibility in training our sin, our children 
is to get their sin to be as constrained as it can be without the Holy Spirit. Because in the end, the only true solution to the problem is the Holy Spirit. But God has designed the world so that there is these forces fighting against each other to constrain sin. And we should be leveraging that. We should be thinking about that because we are supposed to get people to obey the things that God has commanded. But you can't expect them to obey it out of a pure heart when they haven't been saved. Right. And, you know, it's uh, we, we, we've talked about it a little bit already, but the parents have probably the biggest, you know, role, external role in constraining sin of anything, you know, anything in the world that, you know, not again, not that they can save the child, but they can, you know, the child, the children grow up with, you know, you know, and it might not seem like it, but there is a great natural respect for their parents and a natural, you know, strength or power that the parents have over the children that allows them to, you know, shape their life so that, that's part of the fulfillment of the verse in Proverbs that train up a child in the, in the way he should go when he is old, he'll not depart from it. So they, you know, they are, you know, constraining sin, you know, for a lifetime, um, even, even in non-believing children, you know, and, and even children that will seemingly abandon, you know, everything their parents taught them, yet they still have more guilt and things that they're doing you know, in their mind and where they're saying, like, I have so much guilt because I was raised in a Christian or even a Catholic home. They're saying, like, I have all of this mental baggage from being raised in Catholicism, which is, you know, far from true Christianity. And that affects people for their entire life. And people recognize they will never get away from that completely. Because even though, you know, maybe there are people that you would say they're the violation of that verse in Proverbs, yet they also fulfill it, you know, even in even in all the wickedness they do. One of the things that I've heard parents do is they go, well, my love for my child is unconditional. Well, you should never have it so that the love of your child is such that you would never disinherit them. Because if they go, I can offend my parent as far as I possibly can, and there will never be a constraint, what you're doing is you're teaching your children that there is no limit to sin. In your job as a parent, even an unbelieving parent, your job is to teach your children there is a limit to how far they can sin. And the idea that, that you'll be my child regardless, that's, that's not a scriptural – I mean, they will be their physical child, but the idea of disinheritance, yeah, there's a point where you do, should disinherit your child. I mean, the Bible talks about there's a point where you should take your son before the civil magistrate and have them stoned. I mean, that's really important because basically what you're doing is, is you're reminding parents that we look at – People who are authorities that have like power over, you know, they the police officer who doesn't constrain sin, and we look at them and we go, "That's your job." And what you're saying is, is as a parent, that is, you are no that's different. Your, you, right? That's your first job, right? You are no different than a police officer, than a king, in the sense of you have an area of authority, and you're you have been given this job by God to constrain the sin of those under you. And I mean, this is you know, we we did an episode on spanking. And I think one of the things we talked about in there was there are people who say, I didn't spank my children, and they turned out okay. And one of the things that they don't realize is that what they've done is they've encouraged that child to switch their sins that they used to do, where the child used to pitch a fit and scream. Well, now they've just shifted it so that within their within your family, they've chosen a configuration of sins that are pleasing, that are, are, are tolerable. acceptable, tolerable. Right. And and. In the end, I mean, it's really important because the doctrine of spanking is that it's the way that God has designed it so that you can put pressure on sin in a way that glorifies him and that helps your child understand and constrain his sin so that he doesn't do that. 
I mean, it is, it really is a, a fundamentally different thing. And I mean, we I think we talk about that in at least uh, I think there's at least one or two episodes we've done specifically on discipline. Pride is one of the things that is, is a key thing that constrains sin. I mean, and and, and it, it is sin. And, 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 right, <laughs> and it, right, and it is sin. I mean, and I think I mean, I remember you like telling me the story of like with your father, with like there were certain things in his career that you had to do. There were certain things that he was expected to do, and because of that, he had this, you know, he had this obligation to live in a certain way, and he thought of himself in a certain way, and because of that, he ended up having pride in himself, but that also caused him, there were many sins that he would not go out and do, and pride is, pride is very common in the sense of God uses it in many different ways to cause people to constrain their own sin and the sin of others. And when you look at, you know, one of the things that other podcasts that we did on shame that we're breaking down in our cultures, we're breaking down the concept of shame. And the concept of shame is basically that you should have some sense of pride in yourself, where you are, of who you are, right? The pride of life. And that when you have shame, it's that society is saying we don't care. And so we should just recognize like the 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 gender confusion stuff and the the gender identity and all these things. This is all about trying to destroy the idea that the society can say there is a good person and a bad person, that there is a person that is walking in a way that's acceptable to the society and there's people that aren't. And they're intentionally doing it, right? Because they're trying to intentionally undermine the people that, you know, they, you make money, that's bad. You do this, that's bad. You take a loan, that's good. I mean, they're, they're intentionally doing the things that two generations ago Everybody would go, what? You're on welfare. What's wrong with you? Are, you clearly have a significant moral problem. You have all this debt that you never repay. The Bible says, you know, the, the wicked borrow and do not repay. And yet now as a society, we're going, well, the society has to repay. And so we're doing all these things to redefine it so that, that you know, a generation, two generations ago where people's pride of life would constrain their sin – there's a real intentional undermining of that that's going on right now in our society. Right, and you know the the pride is is a really really powerful thing. You know, you look at the you know countless people in history who have gone into a situation where they they thought they were probably going to die, so they're risking their life. And most of those people weren't suicidal. Most of them were driven by pride, you know, in themselves, in their family, in their country, in something usually they're themselves, but that they were willing, they would say, I am willing to die rather than give up my pride. In the whole boot camp, right? The whole point of boot camp, or not the whole, but 99% of boot camp is to get a group of people together that they have it so that they would be so ashamed to bring shame on the group that they'll do things like go into battle and get shot at. I mean, that's the whole point of boot camp. It's to shift their mindset to say that this unit, if I let my unit down, this is just the most horrific <laughs> sin in the history of all creation. You're talking specifically boot camp in times of war. I mean, it is true even – but right. I mean, but it, it, Especially in times of war. But, right. I mean, that is what they're also trying to train. I mean, right. that, because they're keeping the same basic structure. Right. And so the idea is to get this this level of unity that that – it just would be shocking the idea that you wouldn't do it to the point and and at times of war literally people charge into fire where they're getting shot at because they're afraid to let down the unit that they're with and this is how i mean that pride is like josh was saying that pride's very powerful to motivate and our government uses it all the time well it's what it Boot camp is doing is relocating the pride. It's taking sure. relocating your individual pride and 
projecting it into the group. And specifically, that the most shameful thing individually is for you to let down the group. And so they're redefining what your sense of shame is so that it's, I let down the group, I let down these brothers, I left down these comrades in arms, so this is just such a horrific thing that I did. I mean, we forget that patriotism in a lot of ways. I mean, that it, I mean, patriotism is tied to it's from the word for father, for father. You know, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's that you have this idea of pride of who your father is, of who you know, who your people are. I mean, and you just forget that these things are fundamentally connected. You ask anybody who's been in the military if they don't teach you to be proud of the flag and proud of the name. I mean, that that is a driving force, and not and and they try to temper it. I'm not even saying like it's like this rampant pride of like this ridiculous destructive sinful pride it is a sin but it is still something that they're trying to forge into a very specific form of pride that causes what they see as beneficial things and what and what and many there really are constraints in the culture right. and it really creates a civilization and these other things that are going on it has real effects and they're positive effects even though god is leveraging sin to cause those positive effects So one of the reasons that I think it's important for us to talk about these things and think of these things, because there are real ways that the church is supposed to be using these things, and the church is supposed to use it because we are to be salt and light. And when we think about sin affecting and constraining other sin, I mean, that is, to the culture outside, that is how you you have that effect. That is how you have the effect of being salt and light. Like Ephesians 5, 11 through 13 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. And so when you go out there and expose sin in a culture, it really has an effect to constrain sin. It's a real effect because people don't want the shame. They don't want to go... Yeah, I've accepted this. And what we've allowed in our culture, the church has allowed the culture to define what things, what it's shameful to expose. I'm against homosexuality. What's wrong with you? You're against homosexuality. And the church has to trust that, no, the light actually will bring shame and that we're just not bold enough to say it so that we allow other things to bring shame and other things to define shame instead of trusting that the light that God gave the church, that it will bring shame. It will put constraint. It will cause the pride of people to go, yeah, I don't want to be seen doing that. I mean, and, and this is – specifically, this is sort of – this is somewhat different than what we've been talking about up to this point because up to this point we've been talking about how people's sins can cause positive effects. And here you're talking about the fact of we – the church should be – trusting in the fact that God has made it so that light is a fundamental thing that causes sin to be constrained. And their sin is going to cause them to constrain the other sin. Right. Because their their reputation, if you can change the society to be thinking about homosexuality wrong or correctly and that it's wrong, then all of a sudden the homosexual – I mean, it's not that people's lust changed that we've doubled the percentage of people that want to be homosexuals now. It's not because people's lust change that in New York school systems, like 23% do not identify as boys or girls. I mean, it's just like insane. It's not because of the nature of man changed. It's the nature of the society saying this is evil and this is good. And the church has to get busy doing that. Only we have true light, so we will win because darkness flees from light. So if we use the light we've been given – then their shame will cause the constraint of sin. 
but instead the church is ashamed of the gospel. We've been talking about total depravity, and really that you, you have to start with that. You, the church has got to recognize that, go back to those verses in Romans, that man in every way is as, in every way and in every aspect is bad, defiled, broken, that that the effects of sin have touched every part of humankind. And at the same time, man's not as bad as he could be. Well, and, we're headed there. <laughs> well, but but part of the church's responsibility is to hold both of those doctrines together and say, okay, if I hold both these doctrines together, then in between that space, there's work that I can do. Right. There's work for the church to do to say, in with with just the human means that the that God has given the church, independent of the work of the Holy Spirit on people's hearts, that there are things that the church can do. Like bringing light. Right. In the word of God, right? Sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern. It's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so it causes people to see how they really are. I mean, this, and it doesn't say it does this through the miracle work of the Holy Spirit. And yes, the Holy Spirit does use the word, speaks the word, teaches the word, guides the word. But at the same time, the word itself has real power. And so... It's so often that if you're just willing to say things and describe things as they really are, like describe homosexuality like it really is, not using, right, like sodomy as opposed to calling it homosexuality. And when people think about it, they all go, that's disgusting. That is sick. And almost everybody does. And so you can shift society by doing that because if you don't let them use platitudes, if they don't – you let them use words that just make it easier for them to find the unacceptable acceptable, they will find the unacceptable unacceptable. And it's their part of life, but that's okay. You're, you're, the church is to use those things. That's why darkness flees from light. I was reading a news story earlier today, and, and I kind of did a double take, and I don't know why, but, but the author just felt like they could say the phrase abortion care as is if abortion is a form of care that that because of various regulations right. that are going on in many states the access to abortion care is decreasing you know cutting a baby up and portion into pieces is not care right but but if you can say that like that without the church ever pushing back then that's how you get more abortion that's how you get more people whose hearts are more seared towards it because the church hasn't been willing to say here's what's really going on right and it's not something that's just for outside the church, it's for uh, inside the church as well. And Hebrews ten twenty four and 25 uh, bears on this. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So here we have the, the instruction to exhort one another, to encourage one another, um, in love and good works, we have instructions of, I mean, we have instructions just to assemble together. We have instructions, um, you know, elsewhere, clear instructions to rebuke uh, people in sin. 
And these are things that, that work uh, to constrain one another's sin. You know, and there's times where it can even constrain the sin where it's not creating true repentance. I mean, there's, you know, obviously that's the hope when you come to someone and encourage them that they're, you know, the change they're making in their life is, is a true repentance before God. But there's times where it's just, it's peer pressure. And that is still a positive thing that they are, you know, that there is not, uh, you know, public and open sin going on in the church. But I think it's more positive even than the language you were using about this verse is not just about constraining sin. This verse has the angle of you're working in a context where you're expecting the Holy Spirit to work. So you're stirring one another up towards love and good works, which is not, that's not merely constraining sin. Constraining sin is part of that, but there's a, we're not just holding back, we're pushing you into doing the right thing. Right, but there's sins of omission and sins of commission. So it's, it's constraining your sin. Constraining sins your sin of omission. Exactly. I, exactly. I, I feel like there's a double negative in there. But. Yeah, sometimes double negatives are good. <laughs> when you look at what the church is supposed to do, it's really easy to go, well, that person might then just conform. Well, that's true, but the reputation of the church just got better. The way people see Christ and the effect of Christ just got better. There's real effects. You can't tell the person's heart. You can't tell whether they're just going to now do it because that's the expectation around them. That doesn't mean you set that that you don't set that as the expectation. That is why you set it as the expectation, not because you go then I'll know they're saved, but you go because God hates sin. He wants it to be constrained. I think, and often when people talk about the church and they talk about the, I mean, and there is a danger of false holiness. There really is. But people often look back and they go, the most dangerous thing is like, and they, and they go back to the Pharisees, and they go back and they look at Israel that put Christ to death. But what they forget to say is Christ died, and he went to heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And the Holy Spirit is doing something in the world that is greater than what he was doing in the world when the Pharisees were there. And there is this part of it where, I mean, they just really forget that is that the Holy Spirit is in the world, and the world is different than it was when the Pharisees were there. And yes, there can still be Pharisees, and yes, fake holiness is a problem, but there is this part of it where the church is being a light in a way that Israel was never a light. The church has power that Israel never had. Stay and stay here until power comes upon you. That was something that was new. That was something that was different. And it's just really, you have to actually deny the power of the Holy Spirit to say that the church causing other people to be constrained in this way is going to lead to some horrible thing. No, there will not be a repeat of what happened with Israel. The church will be victorious. And even when you look inside the church, when you're provoking somebody to love and good works, when you're stirring them up, as it says in the New King James, when you when you do that, yes, there'll be people that are just doing a, a an affectation of of holiness but the reality is that's a heavy yoke and the reality is yes they may do that for a while but at some point if they're slaves to sin they'll throw off the yoke and they'll throw it off in a way that it becomes obvious to everybody when instead you don't constrain their sin and you just have an acceptable you know level of sin in the church that is at a certain level and you just go well it's not that bad they're not that bad and you ignore it and you don't provoke one another to love and good works then what happens is they never figure out where they are because you haven't made the yoke heavier. The church actually has a duty to make the yoke heavier for unbelievers in the church. Because those who are believers, they go, 
Jesus Christ's yoke is light. It's easier for me to do in righteousness because then I don't have the the struggle with sin the same way. I mean, it's to the righteous man being provoked to love and good works is a blessing. To the unrighteous, over time it, it becomes an a curse, burden. and it becomes an unbearable burden. Where then it becomes obvious, and then they know where they stand before God. Right, and, and so the, it's a blessing for both. And when the church says that unbearable burden is something we should not ask anyone to bear, you really have to ask the, the power quite, of the Holy right, Spirit. Right. Does the church really know Christ? Does the people who are saying this do they really know? Christ? You're really saying you don't want to flush out the hypocrites, right? Right. Or we would rather them be there and let them pretend because it maybe we're here because maybe we're all faking. My wife was just telling me about a story she was reading about somebody who was it was it was some story about how do you you talk to your children and and what sort of of cadences do you have what what sort of liturgies do you have with the ways that you speak with your children and and what are the common mantras in your house and. And somebody was like, oh, well, you know, hey, I, I expect obedience, and I expect it quickly. And a whole bunch of people come back in the comments reacting against that, saying, oh, no, I would never say that to my children because I'm not even like that. And you just think about that for a minute, and you realize what somebody's saying is, I can't expect my children to obey because I'm not the kind of person who obeys quickly. So I'm not going to ask that of my children. And Which means you have a guaranteed decaying standard. <laughs> right. Generational decay is guaranteed in that situation. Yep. And and you're not willing to say maybe what really needs to happen is I need to get myself right with God while I am elevating the standard in my home. I mean, even when you when we when we talk about this verse here where it's talking about provoking one another, I mean we there's a there's other verses that talk about how that Christ is you know, fitting us together as like lively stones and we're being fitted together into a building. And there's this part of it where, I mean, like you talked about, this is a positive thing, right? I mean, because part of what has to happen for stones to be fitted together is parts of the stones have to be taken off. You know what I mean? You're, you've got two stones and you're trying to fit them together. And the real way is, yeah, we need to, this, this part needs to go, right? I mean, and this is what happens with us. This is, we talked about peer pressure earlier, and this is, this is kind of like this is the holy this is the holy spirit exerting pressure on you through the body to knock bits and pieces of you off that should not be there that need to be gone right i mean and this is but this is a way like it's a way that sin is constrained it's a way that the person is sanctified it's a way that as they move forward they are made more holy and i mean and this affects like you said everyone i mean and it really is this thing that it's very easy to look at the church and not think of the church in this way and it's very easy to not understand that God designed this as a way to sanctify the church and and the world. When we think of the total depravity of man, we should also recognize God is not depraved in any way. He is completely and totally holy. And so in his holiness, in his great mercy, in his great kindness to man, he causes there to be sin constrained for the worst sinner. He causes sin to be constrained even though we're totally depraved without the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. He still causes there to be righteousness in the world, even though it's not flowing from man. God is that good, and when we reject the doctrine of total depravity and we don't understand it, we end up elevating man over God instead of recognizing the goodness of God. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. 
If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.